What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are back with another episode of the podcast. Uh, We're, what, uh, weeks into reopening now. We're two-plus weeks into the nationwide uh, protests about the killing of of George Floyd, and we've got a lot to discuss. It's, it's, 2020 is, you know, we, we, I feel like we've had a succession of years. First, it was 2016. 2016 was the bad year that everybody <laughs> couldn't wait for 2016 to be over. And uh, I think in many ways, each successive year has, has developed that reputation. And in some ways, that, that, that's, just a, that's just a measure of America under Trump. Uh, I think, you know, who knows what 2021 is going to bring, but 2020 certainly seems in an entirely different category. It's hard to keep track of the different public crises and then just just news developments. We're going to talk about a bunch of them today, but before we do, before uh, I bring in my co-hosts, Kate and David, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Grady's Cold Brew is here to help you stay cool and caffeinated this summer with their signature New Orleans-style ice coffee. If you're still holed up at home, Grady's can bring the coffee shop to you. Their line of brew-it-yourself bean bags ship directly to your door for less than a buck a cup, and the system couldn't be easier to use. Just add water to the pre-measured filter bags for gallons of completely customizable cold brew. No special equipment required, and shipping is free on all Grady's beanbag products. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And and I will say, uh, my my wife and I. This is what this is what I mean. We 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 sometimes use them before the quarantine, but this is what we've what we've been doing. Uh, you know. Uh, the whole time during quarantine you get these bags you 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 get like a pitcher of water you toss them in and 12 hours later you're good to go and we, yeah, we awesome. like at our house we have like a you, you know we we basically have a constant rotation right so there's never like a drop off right in, in, one in, is brewing one is sort of ready to go or even like two is brewing right because like <laughs> nice. we're pretty we're pretty uh hardcore uh, uh grady's drinkers so yeah it's, yeah it's it's a it's a serious thing in our in i've our got household. some of those bean bags on the way to my house as well so i'm excited to to get back into the back into the groove, with yeah, the Grady's, the yeah, Grady's yeah. groove. No, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta check in with Grady today and find it, get a <laughs> get an update. Yeah, but Josh, you're so right about each successive year since 2016 just feeling more and more overwhelming and momentous. I mean, I've thought over the course of the last few months on several occasions that Trump was impeached this year, right in January, February of 2020, and that. I mean, it was obviously a historical event in its own right, but it feels like a distant memory now in the midst of everything else going on. So yeah, who knows no, what the next five, absolutely. five, six months will will bring. We can only can only imagine. 
So uh, the protests, like you said, Josh, have continued across the nation uh, in major cities and some smaller cities. Even there's been pretty, uh, pretty sizable turnouts. Yesterday morning, we had a kind of a new category of Trump tweet come come to the fore, which was the president accusing the 75-year-old protester in Buffalo, New York, who was pushed to the ground by a couple of police officers, hit his head on the ground, started bleeding from his ear, has been in the hospital ever since. So really almost a week now. Um, I think he's just out of the ICU. But Trump tweeted, citing this OAN report, that's Trump's new favorite news network, kind of even more extreme than Fox, even more pro-Trump than Fox. But Trump cited an OAN report that suggested this guy might have been an Antifa agitator and that, you know, Antifa is a group that doesn't even really exist uh, in any traditional sense or structure. It's just sort of a loosely affiliated group of people against fascism. Anti-fascism is is what Antifa stands for. And so yesterday we had Trump going after this elderly guy who the video clearly shows was approaching a couple cops, a group of cops seemed to be asking a question uh, and they respond by pushing him and he, he falls over, takes a couple steps back and falls over. And Trump suggested maybe he fell harder than he was pushed. Uh, I didn't even know that was a thing, but there you go. Uh, Kate, you've been writing a bit about this whole Antifa freak out lately. Trump himself, a week or two ago, declare, you know, tried to declare Antifa a terrorist organization. There's some question about whether he can even do that for a domestic group. Did he uh, actually follow up with like an ex- like a, like a, a thing? I don't even remember at this point. I can't remember if there was an official executive order, if it was just one of those getting up in front of cameras and saying, you know, declaring it so. Um, like, was it just the tweet? I maybe? think it was just the tweet. Right. Yeah, maybe it was just that. But you've, Kate, you've been writing a bit about this freak out, and there was a, a case in a small town in Washington State. Is that right? Where? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. There was some. <laughs> thought that there was Antifa infiltrators and, you know, this stuff kind of, it comes from the top with Trump, obviously, but it filters down into these local, sometimes kind of scary situations. So tell us what what else has been going on in this front. Right. I mean, the Antifa excuse on its, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Like you said, um, part of the reason that Trump couldn't really declare Antifa terrorist organization is because it's not a group. It's kind of a posture. But, you know, for Trump, it kind of makes sense because having a boogeyman like Antifa works on multiple layers for him because, you know, it helps cast doubt on the protests that they're just a mask for this kind of insidious, violent, militant uh, group. It kind of it gives his people an enemy, you know, whereas which I think maybe be easier for some people to cling on to than the, you know, not all cops are bad, you know, kind of rings a little hollow. So you've got this coming, like you said, David, from the top, you know, you had after that, uh, Barr put out a statement, you know, connecting Antifa to some of the riots that broke out initially in the big cities when these protests start. And yeah, that's trickled down to these kind of military wannabes and towns like the story I did was on um, a town called Forks, which is this really, really small, remote logging town. And do it seems likely due to some conversation that was kind of spearheaded by this gun shop owner in a nearby city, 
you know, they all got it through their heads that Antifa's on the move. They're coming here to our remote little town. Like, that's where they're going to make their stand. And so, you know, all these people, these well-armed people got out their guns and went to guard various things. Um, and, you know, in Forks, that ended up culminating with an almost kind of comical event that this family was there to go camping on one of the log spurs. And uh, they, the mobilized locals decided that they were Antifa, trailed them, ended up scaring the family off the campsite after trying to box them in with felled trees that were, you know, the way was cleared by some some good-natured chainsaw-bearing high schoolers. So, I, I mean, in that case, the whole thing kind of dissolved into the ridiculous. But it is, you know, that isn't the only story we've seen like that. It is kind of surprising how this idea that these protests are a facade for this, you know, deep insidious movement that are coming to attack these, you know, really small remote towns. You know, I haven't seen much, much investigation of, of the idea from these people that why would Antifa want to come to your tiny town? But, you know, besides that, we've seen a lot of these like mobilizations where these people like to use military jargon to say, you know, we've deployed things like that with it, I guess just means going outside and they just stand on the street and wait for this infiltration that never, you know, materializes. And then afterwards say things like, you know what, good dry run, good to be ready, good to be rehearsed. And uh, just really are following the, the president's increasingly crazy line on that. In the in the case in Washington, Kate, it's it's mm-hmm. sound, I mean it 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 was a it's the kind of story I I kind of can't resist because it is both very telling about really important political, cultural, social issues in our country, and it's also like absurd just what was mm-hmm. happening. But you can also see how it could have. Right. gotten really bad really quickly. I guess one of the dimensions that that would seem to have played some role is we didn't get the exact rundown, but it was described as a biracial family. So it's probably mm-hmm. like the couple was probably, uh, you, you know, a black wife, white husband, black husband, white wife, probably something like that, that may have played some, you know, some role in focusing on, on these people. But, y- you know, you trap people in a campsite, people have guns, you know, that can degenerate mm-hmm. really fast and, and get really ugly really fast. There was, I, I, I know that you have, um, that's the one you did the, the, the sort of the most reporting on, but I feel like there's been at least half a dozen of like similar cases where it's mm-hmm. basically rural part of the country. Um, rumors start floating on Facebook Antifa, you know, Antifa is coming to our area. There's some sort of scrambling. And then in almost every case, nothing happens because they weren't coming in the first place. And everybody kind of declares victory and like, you know, like we've established deterrent. They were too scared to come down here. Exactly. Now, wasn't that, I I think, didn't I... uh, uh, Didn't didn't I forward to you and and John, and John is 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 an editor here at at TPM who who works with Kate, another one in like in, uh, in Oregon... In like mm-hmm. Eastern Oregon or something like that. Yeah. Do we have Which details a, on that one? Yeah, I, I talked to the guy who sent in the tip. It was a, a pretty similar situation of like mobilization, kind of coming from this rumor that an amorphous, no one knows how it got started rumor. Like these people like to refer to this as Intel, you know, which could be as nothing as like a Facebook meme. But right. so yeah, they got the Intel, the locals came out to the street to protect people um you know like they like to fancy themselves as kind of being auxiliary 
to the actual police forces in the place. So they're like, yeah, we were just out there to like support our boys, you know. And uh, that was a case where nothing happened. Of course, they ended up. I guess they got tired and like went home. And then the the thought was, you know what? We probably scared them off. They they probably saw this coming. They're like, no, we don't want to mess with this particular <laughs> tiny suburb. So we're gonna move on. Now, is there is there anything coming out about? the extent to which this is, if not coordinated, but as, as we've said, it's, it's been like across the country and, Mm -hmm. and there have been sort of different variations of it. I believe there was one incident in, uh, Indiana where actually like the, like the state police or something like that got involved where there was this rumor that there was Antifa that was going to come across the border from Chicago, uh, into Indiana. And they like, shut down some highways or something like Mm. this is there any are these rumors coming from any clear place does it just seem to be purely atmospheric is there i mean what's going on 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 the grounds of actual fact what we know there was one rumor that was getting circulated like wildfire on on facebook and twitter and the gist of it was uh Antifa is going to move from the cities, the hubs of the protests into white residential areas. And people were just sharing, you know, a ridiculous amount of sharing of like preparing, you know, if you're nearby city, it could be you. And then that ended up getting discovered that the group behind it was um, Identity Europa, which is a white supremacist group. And then we've seen kind of a spattering of other instances like that of this information coming from people posing as members of Antifa that are actually sown by white supremacy groups. Um, So that we've seen that as a, a definitive origin of some of it. But What's interesting is, I think, to the nationwide aspect of this, um, there were two cases, one in New Jersey and one in South Dakota, I think, where the local police were getting suddenly inundated with calls from people who were all saying essentially the same thing. They were the only specific they had in common was, you know, three busloads of Antifa is coming here. And, you know, that just kind of shows you that the same vague but concerning rumors are just getting you know, shot around social media at lightning speed. And I think to some degree, people want this to be about them or want to have a role to play in it. And so they interpret it as, you know, that Identity Europa tweet was Antifa's moving into white residential areas outside of cities. Obviously, that could apply to almost the entire country. But if you want it to be about your space, all of a sudden it's like, you know what, we're only two hours away from XYZ. It reminds me a bit of like Trump's fear-mongering around like MS-13. And, you Mm -hmm. know, there was some... Some indications there was MS-13 or, you know, affiliated gang activity on like Long Island, for instance, but Trump just totally took that and ran with it. And it's sort of like you can apply that to anyone, too. And it's like similar with the suburban Antifa scares like, oh, this group of dangerous criminals or people are coming to our front door and we got to get ready for it. Even in the Minneapolis protest context, I'd heard that some of the affluent suburbs around the Twin Cities, around the actual cities proper, had started boarding up wind, you know, stores and windows and things like that. And it just kind of made me think, why does anyone care about what's happening in this random suburb of right. <laughs> Minneapolis, you know? But I guess in, in some ways, maybe it, it was just precautions when the protests were especially kind of uh, 
I don't know, violent or disruptive. But um, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're in a nearby suburb, you know, and 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 things really are kind of spiraling as they as they were during the first week in Minneapolis, I can see maybe you just kind of you know board up the windows, you know. Just be care, you know, just to be safe mm-hmm. or something like that. Uh, it's all kind of a matter of degrees, you know. The suburb, some suburbs are kind of right on the edge of the cities and stuff like right. that. So there's, there's some aspect of of just you know precaution or people get you know people get scared in cases where there's not nothing to be scared of. You know, there, 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 what there were instances of looting and stuff like that, but yeah, there, there is, and, and this is, it's funny. This is really, it's part of a larger progression over many years because a lot of the Bundy ranch stuff is, is, is not unrelated to this in as much as, you, I mean, th- that is a lot of that is, I mean, ironically, also BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, a lot, you know, federal <laughs> government's role in, in ranching rights and stuff like that. But, but there is a strong current there of the lawless people from the cities are going to come and get us. Uh, and obviously, that's that's heavily interwoven with, with, mainly race but a lot of other things uh it's just it's weird seeing the seeing the similarities but also the contrasts with stuff that that uh the people those of us who are a bit older were reporting on in the 90s with like malicious stuff it's all you know all kind of goes together yeah and i think this situation while there are definitely some you know comic elements to these people standing sentry over you know their streets and their tiny towns there definitely is kind of an a through line of you know deeply insidious forces that kind of these people have so willingly grabbed on to this really really specious just like pretty clearly silly thing and I think part of it uh, has to do with what you said Josh which is the race element you know it's it's pretty you know, on its face, these people can't take these large protests of, you know, diverse crowds led by, uh, you know, civil rights groups that are helmed by black people. They just can't take those as what they are on their face, you know, an uprising against decades of police brutality. They've got to be a front for something. They've got to be secretly violent. You just can't see it on the front, on the face of it. And it comes in pretty stark juxtaposition to just a few weeks ago when we saw many of these same people railing against their governors and uh, staking out, you know, state capitals with these same weapons, you know, cheering for, for haircuts and reopening and things like that. And then you've got these same people who now they see this other wave of protests, which are based on, you know, I think you can say pretty objectively much deeper societal ills. And their instant reaction is these people you know, this is an enemy force. They're coming to get me and my family and my town, and I have to stand guard against it. You you can see there's, there's again, similar stuff with one of the big things in sort of uh, uh, v- vote fraud hysteria. Mm-hmm. And this is something the president has pushed himself, this idea of people being bussed in 
to vote, usually bust in from the cities to your suburb. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think that the president talked about was people being bused from Massachusetts up to New Hampshire to pull New Hampshire into the Democratic column. So there's there's thematic common elements to all this stuff. Yeah. Um, Josh, I'm curious, just speaking of the protests and Trump's, you know, the the photo op that has become such a signature image of the Trump presidency, we've seen a lot of kind of video evidence of cops using excessive force. You know, the the scene outside Lafayette, in Lafayette Square outside the White House was one example of that. In New York, we've seen you know, we've talked about cops driving into a crowd of pro- protesters or there was a, a police officer sort of near Barclays Center in Brooklyn who had pushed a woman uh, over onto the sidewalk. That officer was charged with assault yesterday. Do you have a sense that these excessive force or police brutality is getting worse? Is it just there's more evidence on video now? Everyone has a cell phone they're carrying around with kind of high-definition cameras or is it kind of hard to tell whether... You know, this is different than sort of past episodes. I'm just curious to have your sense of kind of a bit more of a, a longer view. You know, it's I, I think at one level, it's just all of the above. The fact that that everybody, I mean, literally pretty much everybody has a video camera in their pocket is, is a, you know, is a transformative game changing thing. It's why we even found out about the George Floyd thing in the first place, as opposed to maybe having a couple eyewitnesses claiming that they saw something different that was in, that was in the police report. So that's a really big part of it. I think we also have to, as a sort of a caveat, keep in mind that you have very big protests happening in dozens, maybe hundreds of cities across the country. And that means you have hundreds of thousands of civilians, probably tens of thousands of police in a very intense situation. Some things are going to happen, even if there were no problem with policing, right? Some people are going to lose their temper and, and, and do things. So that I think is, is another factor. Uh, I think yet another one is that there has always been a sense in in these cases that the police, many police officers and, and many police departments institutionally see themselves as a, a constituency within us within their given city. And so there's there's a tendency sometime for that to become like a counter protest what the police are doing as opposed to just doing crowd control in 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 a city. And I think. Trump and everything that has happened in the last few years has sort of galvanized that. And and I do think there is an aspect of of what we have seen over the last couple weeks that is both sides saying this is the confrontation, basically. I mean, this has been building with, with these different incidents over the years. And so I think to a certain extent, I, we, we know that the protesters are saying enough you know, this is, this is just enough. We will not tolerate this anymore. And I do think there's an aspect of the police saying, you know, let's do it. You're right. Let it kind of, this is the confrontation and it's all been building up. And so I, I think some of it is that, uh, I've definitely seen, and I don't think this is just seeing more of it. It seems like across the country, the police have been more aggressive with reporters um, reporters are only, you know, a tiny fraction of the people there 
uh, since that's kind of the line of work we're in. I never want to make that kind of the story, but I do think that is a change. I don't think that is, I don't think that's not connected to the president, but whether it's, whether it is worse or not, it, it is very hard to watch what we have seen over the last two weeks uh, and not think like, like it's almost like someone got together to create just a constant flow of video clips that are not in the sense they're targeted, but almost as though they were targeted at people who take police brutality seriously, take institutional racism in our society seriously, but maybe think, okay, but, you know, most cops are doing a good job, you know, that kind of, you know, sort of middle of the road people and and just um overwhelming them with these clip after clip after clip where you say wow something is wrong here and and to me in a lot of these cases because you know look people are in you know kinetic situations everybody is uh you know kind of revved up right certain things will happen. And I'm not talking about like kneeling on someone for nine minutes and they die. I mean like shoves and stuff like that. And so in some of these cases of these crowd control situations we've seen, what is more striking to me is not so much the original incidents. It's the police and police union reactions after the fact. Because in this case of this guy, we've all seen this video of this older man, I guess 75 years old, in Buffalo, who kind of approaches the police in not what seems in any way a threatening manner. And again, he's 75 years old, right? He's kind of a thin, elderly man. And they just kind of casually shove him back, hits his head, you know the story. You know, one way for the police to react to that would be to say, okay, that was not, that was not handled well, tense situation, someone overreacted. Now, that wouldn't make it okay necessarily, but you say, okay, well, you know, yeah, I guess everybody's, every, you know, everybody had been doing lots of shifts and there had been other incidents, whatever. But the response from the police union and those 50 or so police officers who resigned over it was basically, yep, that was a righteous shove, you know, <laughs> like that's some solid police work. And I think a lot of people, and I include myself in this, like, dude, what are you talking about? Like, like I think there are a lot of civilians out there, probably disproportionately people who have not experienced directly police abuse, who'd say, wow, that is not okay. But, but okay, you know, what came before? And okay, this one guy just, just lost it for a second. But it's institutionally the whole group coming back and said, "Yep, we're just doing our job, man. Why are you giving us crap?" And and, and I that, think even the even the department's press release or statement on the incident in the tripped. first place said that he tripped. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. I think, but he, but even after the video came out, mm-hmm. yeah. you have the police union saying like, you know, we're just doing our job, and that's the kind of stuff where I think a a critical segment of the population says, dude, maybe we don't have the same understanding of what your job is. Because how is that your job? Like, yeah, no one's perfect. You know, things are going to happen that aren't good. But that is not that is not the goal here for for a civilian just to be like standing next to you and you and and you, you just sort of casually 
do something that almost kills him. It's it's it, and there's as you said, there's just been so many of these instances of. You know, just batoning people and um, pulling a mask down and pepper spraying them in the yeah, face, things and, like that. Yeah. And a lot of those things is you can kind of tell if you just see enough of these instances. This isn't crowd control or or trying to kind of move crowds. It's punitive. It's sort of like you're anti-cop, we are anti-you, and we've got mm-hmm. weapons, and we're going to make you pay for this shit you're doing. And that is, you know, that. That's not okay. That's an understatement. That's not okay, right? Uh, and yeah, it reminds it reminds me of what you were saying last week. It's like, do you work for us or do we work for you? Are these, like, are we, you know, are we able to go on the streets in public in the city that we all pay taxes in and all that, or are we supposed to kind of help you do your job as cops? Or you know what I mean? And so, and also, and what's the it, job? Yeah. Right. And the part of it that is tangentially related to this that's been the most shocking to me is how little these police officers who have been captured in these clips, you know, being egregiously violent or disproportionate in their response, they've been so brazen. I mean, surely they know that they've had to be filmed. I mean, this started with um, Derek Chauvin, you know, when he had a phone in his face and it didn't it didn't matter. It didn't alter his behavior. And all these instances, it hasn't seemed to cause these officers to feel any greater sense of if not accountability than even self-preservation and the fact that that instinct is lacking i think just shows you at a deeper level that these people don't think that they have to be afraid for their jobs if they act out aggressively i mean i think it's a reflection of the many layers of protection that police officers enjoy that they're willing to you know throw the the young woman to the crowd or let the old man bleed out while they walk by. You know, the fact that they're willing to do this when they know in in the midst of a crowd, when people are watching and recording, just shows how little they fear the repercussions of their actions. That's a good point. Uh, Well, maybe we can spend the last bit of the show talking about politics electoral politics a little bit Actually, and this David, is can I, we, yeah. we, we should but let me let me draw back to one point I, I i wanted to make and 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 that is um you know i have lived in i've lived in new york city for about 15 or actually more than 15 16 or 17 years now and uh that is over a period of of you know fair you know pretty low crime for it, pretty much all of that period. So it's been a different, like I didn't live in, in, in live near New York, but not in New York, like in the nineties and eighties and stuff like that. In any case, um, for those of you who do not live in the New York area, the New York police department, the NYPD is actually a pretty diverse force. If you talk about, uh, uh cops on, on, you know, on patrol, it's actually a, a majority of those officers, which is the, you know, the great majority of officers are, are not white, uh, Asian, Hispanic, African-American. Uh, and, and, and the forces actually moved fairly substantially in a diverse direction, even over the period I'm describing, certainly compared to, you know, 30, 40 years ago. It's much more white as you get up to the upper echelons of the of the force. Some of that is, you know, inertia. It takes, you know, if you're if you are bringing in a more diverse uh, force in year, you know, year one, it, those people aren't going to become the leadership of the organization a year later, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In any case, um, one of the 
very uh, shaping things for my sense of the of the NYPD is the new is the NYPD unions. And there's two or three of them. Uh, there's one for like the, you know, the beat officers. There's um, another for the sergeants. But in any case, it's very striking. First of all, the, <laughs> the leadership of the unions, y- you might think it was 1950. They are sort of universally, uh, you know, kind of Irish white guys, right? And that's not really what the force is anymore. Um, but far more than that, obviously, you can be you can be rock solid as a as a as a you know white American of of Irish descent. But they are I, they're nuts. They, they they make these public pronouncements. I'm going to the, going to war with the mayor. This fight we're in is a fight between good and evil. I mean, it's like wow, dude, what city are you living in? This is like a fairly progressive city. It is a a majority non-white city. It's even a majority non-white force, right? And it is a very low crime city. So so the the there was actually again, there was just a, just a few days a week or so ago, the uh the sergeants union, the leadership put out this thing. And again, it was about, we're, we're going to fight this war on New York. This is between good and evil. We don't respond, you know, and they, they had this line, like we're, we, we respond to a higher power than the city government. It's like, dude, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like, what the fuck are you talking about? And the guy with the, uh, with, uh, the sort of, you know, patrolman's union basically is this guy, Pat Lynch. And again, just nutso stuff and it's been it's it's been very striking to me because unions vote for their elect their their elected officials right and this guy's been the head of the union forever and i think if they're you know he would be voted out if 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 the majority of the people in that union just you know didn't like what he was what he was saying, and it's striking. They they a group of them, Lynch and maybe the others, and a bunch. You probably saw this video. They did a press conference yesterday or the day before that, and it was very striking. If you looked really closely, I think there was one African American face towards the back of the crowd, but it was like all white men, all about fifty, right and. And like, wow, that's, I mean, it was, it was a very powerful tableau of the moment. And that is not representative of the actual NYPD, right? Um, and it's, and nothing, look, nothing wrong with being a 50 year old white guy or 51 as the case may be. But again, pretty striking. Like, like it, it is my own experiences with the New York, the NYPD have been fairly positive. I mean, I'm a white guy living in Manhattan. That's not terribly surprising. Uh, But since I can't know directly what communities of color experience in, in the, in the outer boroughs, I mean, directly, I'm not there myself. I don't, I don't, you know, it's not my, my lived experience. Just the experience of the police unions has really been formative for me in having a sense of what what the police as a as a group think about their role in the city and who they answer to and who they don't answer to. 
And I, and I think that is, as we've seen in Minneapolis, again, pretty, I mean, politically in electoral politics, pretty progressive city. And they've got this head of the police union who's like almost like a, like a white nationalist or something, like a really nutso guy with all this killology stuff and, you know, kind of, uh, they, uh, we have a number of police officer readers at, at TPM and one especially who, who uh, serves in a department in the greater New York area, not in the NYPD, but greater New York area. And I reach out to him when these things happen and I always try to get his perspective because um, obviously that's his job, right? He's not, he, he, he is a police officer. And the fact that he's a TPM reader gives you a, gives you a sense of his uh, general politics. And often I, uh, it's very helpful to me because there are things I don't see through my prism. Uh, but it seems really clear that as a, as a group, police really do feel kind of invulnerable and, and, yeah. and see pretty basic accountability as, as an attack. And even, you know, the prosecutions and convictions of officers, few as they are, I guess kind of helps explain that probably. Yeah, I don't think it's an unrealistic perception, um, yeah. but it it's a problem. Yeah. All right. Well, in the last uh, little bit of the show, I wanted to switch gears a little bit, talk about Trump and his political standing and kind of where the election stands a little bit. We are about five months from Election Day. Hard to believe. Uh, speaking of 2020 being a monumental year, not only all the things we've talked about, but probably the most consequential election for all of us as well coming up. Um, Trump has, I mean, there's been a number of polls pretty consistently showing Trump support eroding Biden's, you know, either in a comfortable lead or leading in certain swing states. Um, you know, obviously all the polls showed Hillary Clinton was the favorite to win in 2016, and we all know how that went. But Trump seems to have been taking this, especially personally, tweeting about how the CNN poll was fake this week, showing Biden up, I think, 15 points nationally. Uh, and he, Trump has resurrected one of one of these kind of deep cut favorite TPM storylines of yesteryear, this unskew the polls movement. He hired a the McLaughlin and Associates, I think, uh, to basically kind of argue that these polls showing Trump losing are nonsense and are skewed and that basically there are not enough Republican respondents in these polls and therefore it's not capturing the great enthusiasm that Trump is experiencing across the country. And this really, I guess, this whole movement or this whole idea of unskewing the polls started in 2012 in the Obama-Romney race, Obama's re-election. Um, and I remember even writing about this a bit at the time at, for TPM, talking to Mark Murray, a senior political editor at NBC News, and even one of their kind of general election polls with the Wall Street Journal and I think Marist might conduct the polls for them. They even released like an unskewed version of one of their polls in that election. Um, so, Kate, you've kind of been digging into a bit of this history. What else can you tell us about, I don't know, the rich, bogus history of this whole thing? Yeah, I mean, this was uh, resurrected in 2016 as well, which was pretty funny because kind of the movement's founding fathers was this guy, Dean Chambers, who had a, you know, unskewingthepolls.com. And his big argument, like you said, David, is that 
too few Republican respondents in these polling samples, too many Democrats are giving the Democratic candidate an inflated lead. So he decided that he was going to reweight his polls based on in-name party identification, but, you know, at one point he was kind of poaching party ID statistics from the Rasmussen polls, and then he came up with his own based on a web poll that he put into the field. Um, and it's just, it's kind of funny that it keeps coming up because he himself, the day after, you know, Obama won his reelection pretty easily, he said, clearly my methodology was wrong, you know. Yeah, he had, but, a, he had a sort of a, an uncharacteristic recantation. Right. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I remember we had a few yeah. interviews with him that we ran in 2012, I think. Right. So, but um, basically the reason that the, the notion is kind of bogus is that pollsters don't weight polls according to party identification. And that's because it's a pretty fungible uh, metric. It's, you know, people are looser with their party identifications uh, than maybe you would think. For instance, you know, 2012, the thing that kind of uh, thwarted Dean Chambers, I think, in his polls is that as, you know, Obama is popular and doing well, people who support him are more likely to identify with his party. Um, whereas, you know, on the flip side, an example is in the wake of a political scandal, people tend to identify away from the party that had the scandal. So, you know, after Watergate, a lot of people who had previously called themselves Republicans are now calling themselves independents. So the thing is, it's just, it's not a static metric. It changes a lot based on, uh, you know, different factors, cycle to cycle. So the idea that you can kind of take these numbers, which are not really scientifically collected to begin with, there's no database of how people identify by party. Um, so, you know, where he's getting these percentages in the first place is kind of squishy. And then he's deciding that, you know, the same number of people who identified as Republican at this time are always identifying as Republicans, which is just not true. And which is why pollsters don't wait polls like that. They do it based on education and age, uh, gender, things like that. So, Immutable Basically, characteristics. I mean, right, exactly. I don't want to get too political, but uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> how, how many years you were in school, your gender, whether you're right. married, these are, these do how not. How many sh degrees you have, stable things like that. Right. They don't shift with your own opinion. Yeah. Right. So, but, you know, nevertheless, even though this has been sh shown to be kind of bogus, it gets resurrected every time the Republican candidate is doing poorly in the polls. Somebody decides it's because there's too many Democrats being involved. It must be wrong and inflated. And, you know, this time around, McLaughlin, the polling company that Trump retained to give him sunnier news than the national <laughs> landscape right now, uh, pointed to you know, the infamous polling failure of 2016 as an example of, you know, those polls were unskewed. That's why Hillary had this fake lead that didn't, you know, didn't come out on election day, even though in all the many, many autopsies done of the 2016 polling, you know, there have been actual factors pointed to why that polling didn't really bear out, including, you know, late break to Trump, uh, oversampling of people, of highly educated people, you know, like solid actual reasons why the polling didn't so much bear out. But, you know, this is something Republicans always do when they feel their candidate is faring badly in the polls. And, you know, king of alternative reality, Trump is a, a pretty likely candidate to cling on to this now. I, w I will say this, that, that it was not nearly as bad as what happened in 2012. But there was a mini 
un, unskewing movement among Democrats in 2004 on the same lines. There was actually, uh, I think it was a couple guys uh, sort of in the orbit of, of the Daily Coast website, but not only them. And I want to I stress, it was not the sort of conspiracy theory type stuff, but there was this sense that the 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 late polls in 2004 Kerry versus Bush of course had, that they were undersampling democrats and that was you know as we've said here that meant that it was it was uh it wasn't showing uh you know John Kerry's true lead now again this was much more like you know there's a the methodology is a little bit off they're missing some support obviously it didn't turn out that way uh but you know th- this this it, it it's a funny thing because sometimes you will see um uh you know l- legitimate pollsters legitimate you know kind of critics and and people who discuss polling looking at the internals of a specific poll and saying, you know what, the, the, the samples look a little off there. And in any one poll, sometimes you can say, you know what, the, the sample of, of, of Republicans looks really high or looks really low or something like that. And that can be legitimate because if it is really out of sync with everyone else who's doing polls right then, th- that can show maybe maybe they kind of, you know, that one poll is kind of off, but if everybody's doing it at once, it's because you're really unpopular, as you say. Kate. It's really it, it's it's largely just an echo of of candidate preference because people have cognitive dissonance about it's a little harder to say, "Yep, I'm a hardcore Democrat, but my candidate sucks." Right? I mean, just, people have a hard time with that, so they sort of disaffiliate in their own heads, like you were saying. It is, mm-hmm. but it's striking how it. And I, you know, the one other thing I want to say here: we always have to remember the polls weren't very far off in 2016. They were actually very close. What they missed is some, you know, critical small differences in 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 key states. But I think. Um, you know what was it? The sort of the the consensus average of polls had Hillary Clinton, um, you know, like winning by two point nine percent of the vote, and she won the popular vote by like two point five percent of the vote or something right. like that. So pretty close, but obviously, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. not the only thing in in play. Yeah, yeah. I mean, reading McLaughlin's um, menu, uh, memo when he he talks about twenty sixteen, I don't think anyone reading that objectively would be like. Oh yeah, this is a, a really like firm interrogation of the the methodology. You know, he has a line in there that's like, these polls are produced with from places with Democratic operatives like Chuck Todd and George Stephanopoulos. Right. I mean, <laughs> it, it was clearly you know a pretty gift wrapped to uh, make the president right. happy. It, that thing kind of when I saw that, it reminded me of that letter supposedly written by John Dowd that he tweeted. The, the attack on Jim Mattis. Do you remember that he tweeted mm-hmm. this letter? Remember, so John so Dowd over the week. Over the weekend, was that yeah, something? Yeah, something. It was. It was basically in the wake of Jim Mattis's denun- uh, former defense secretary, Jim Mattis's denunciation of Trump. Uh, John Dowd was the president's Russia scandal lawyer for most of the, you know, most of the investigation. Uh, you'd probably recognize his faces if you saw it. And he has, you know, kind of remained in the Trump orbit, even though he was canned at some point like a lot of those guys do and uh he trump tweeted a letter which he said was from john dowd i think a lot of people who know john dowd found it a little 
were a little skeptical that it was from him. I mean, Dowd is like no walk in the park, but this was sort of, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, kind of find the most out of control talk radio kind of crazy. And, and you transcribed a monologue. It sounded like that. It was pretty wild. And it, and it was such a funny thing because like between Jim Mattis and, and, and Donald Trump, what made it so devastating is I don't think most people have too hard a time deciding who's more credible in that kind of situation. But I don't think anybody's saying, oh, let's see what John Dowd has to say about like, <laughs> what, like what? And like, what, you know, so it, and, and then to sort of publish it, it, you know, via Twitter, like, ah, John Dowd, you know, uh, shredded Mattis, ah, ha, ha. It, it, it does seem like as, as, he as as the president has struggled more and more as he has gone to his go-to tactics as he has in the past and not seen them work and seen the situation his political standing deteriorate he seems to be going to lackeys right and just basically saying you know pour it on you know give me the love and i'll and then i'll publish that and um you know, it's kind of weird. I mean, that's like it. It for for those of us who really are not fans of the president, there's there's inevitably a a significant amount of Schadenfreude seeing him struggle like this and 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 uh, going to these to these toadies. But he's also someone who who has a corrupt attorney general who is 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 willing to do kind of whatever he wants. And he also has nuclear weapons. So seeing him this desperate and this like out of control is is sobering. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something we'll have to keep an eye on and more see if any more <laughs> memos come out. <laughs> any other crises all that i think that's about all the time we have today but um to be continued i guess yeah well remember uh the josh marshall podcast is brought to you by grady's cold brew iced coffee uh the best iced coffee on this planet you can uh order it at grady's cold if it's your first time you can get 25 20 percent off with the with the promo code tpm and you can also order it at amazon.com good to talk to you all cool all, all right, right. See you next later time. folks bye, bye.